Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. Today, we're doing a throwback Thursday to one of the earliest episodes of Good Girls Talk About Sex with Stacy. I decided to bring this episode back because recently I've gotten a lot of questions from women about orgasms. How do they know if they've ever had one? How do they have more? What can they do to enjoy them more? At the end of this episode, Stacy takes us through an amazing conversation around orgasms and becoming multi-orgasmic. I think of it as a two-minute masterclass in giving yourself over to the orgasmic experience, if you want to, of course. And I have to tell you that this is a process that I am very much in the middle of myself. I've mentioned this several times recently. I am someone who has a lot of challenges with orgasms. So I'm so excited to revisit this conversation. Stacy is a 45-year-old cisgender female who describes herself as Black, heterosexual, single, and non-monogamous. I am so pleased to reintroduce Stacy. Stacy, I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited. I love being on the in the hot seat. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, here you are. We are going to talk all about your sex life. It yes. doesn't get much hotter. <laughs> Look, I'm ready. <laughs> awesome. So the first question that I ask every guest that I speak with is, what is your first memory of sexual desire? Oh, I was I was in the single digits, like maybe maybe six or maybe five or six. Even I was definitely in the single digits. I remember like feeling aroused and I had a my mom had gotten my older sister and I these ventriloquist dummies for Christmas one year. And mine was W.C. Field. And I remember like taking like the body of the of the dummy was soft, but the hands and the face were were hard, like hard plastic. And I remember taking like his hand and like rubbing it against my vulva. Oh, wow. So you were quite young and you were already making that connection. Mm -hmm. And I remember it being so pleasurable and me doing that all the time. That's so interesting. I was actually um, speaking with another guest recently, and she was talking about around that same age, she would get on a rope swing and she would feel sort of the rope up against her 
vulva and her clitoris. And that was pleasurable, but she didn't quite make the connection. Like she didn't quite understand the cause and effect of that. But it sounds like at that age, you already had the cause and effect very clearly. You know, it appears so. Yeah, I don't remember ever not really getting it. And I, I don't know why, but I don't ever have, I don't have any, any sexual memories that were confusing to me. And so at what point did that desire transfer from you with an object to another person? Do you remember that? Um, I remember making out with like girls, you know, um, Again, like I'm pretty sure I was in the single digits because I don't remember like being over 10, but I remember like playing house and not like not like touching um, genitals, but like kissing and, you know, feeling aroused about that. Hmm. Um, You know, like friends, like we play house or whatever. And and but I think it came from, you know, seeing there like on TV when you when there's a, a family. Yeah, that's what they do. I remember being maybe uh, maybe 10 years old and um, there was a soap opera that my family watched. And I remember going to my mom at one point around that time and saying, mommy, can I kiss you with our tongues the way they do on television? <laughs> and her being horrified. <laughs> but I had no understanding of like how that was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you have told me before we started uh, recording that you are primarily heterosexual. So those early explorations were with girls. Um, at what point did you discover boys? Um, I do remember making out with one of my cousins. Probably, maybe I was like nine, and I do remember. I do remember touching his penis in the closet, but that was probably where it ended until. I'm trying to think like, what was my first, like my first sexual experience with a boy that wasn't um, related to me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just pause there for a second, because I think some people might hear cousins and think, oh, that's very off limits. But I think that's a fairly natural thing. I think it's normal that I knew other family members that had had similar experiences. Um, So it didn't feel abnormal and it didn't necessarily feel wrong to the point where I would have like told on someone, but wrong enough for me to know it wasn't something I should be telling an adult. Okay. You know what I mean? But it didn't feel, I didn't feel violated. Yeah. But, but that experience did make make me very mindful for my own daughter because my daughter, I only have like, I have two nephews and and then there's my daughter and my older nephew is four years older than my daughter. So I do remember paying more attention to them because of my own experience. Yeah, that makes sense. Did, was it your cousin who sort of brought you into the closet or were you naturally curious enough to be like, hey, can we go do this? Um, I'm pretty sure it was mutual. I'm pretty sure it was mutual. Like I said, I, I do remember arousal. It's funny because he and I have never talked about this. <laughs> um, I do remember like being aroused and it. I wasn't coerced. Uh-huh. I was not coerced whatsoever. It was definitely, it, it felt normal. Like we played together and it just felt like something we, it felt like we were playing. 
Yeah. And I think that is probably the biggest and most important distinction is whether the child is coerced. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like, no, I went of, of my own volition, it was a perfectly fine experience, nothing bad happened, then great. Yes, absolutely. It definitely was, um, we were just playing. Yeah. And that just felt like more of that. I mean, again, like there was an awareness that it wasn't something we should be telling adults. There was that, there is that. Um, so, cause it wasn't like, you know, I'd go home and be like, Hey mom, guess what happened? You know, like it wasn't like that. So I did have an enough awareness to know that it was something that we didn't talk about with, um, grownups, but I definitely was, it was consensual. What was the first time that you engaged with somebody who is not a family member? <laughs> um, I remember like making out with, um, oh, he was so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in high school, though, or I was at least going to high school. I think I was probably like finishing ninth grade. He was like, I think he was younger than me by like a year. He was very attractive. And I saw him later as a grown up. Um, we, we both had children. We were at Chuck E. Cheese with our kids. And I thought, oh, my God, he's still so fucking attractive. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so one of the things that I'm always curious about with people who have had, because I was a very late bloomer, mm -hmm. I did not actually start. I didn't have my first kiss until I was 17. I didn't have sex for the first time until I was 25. Mm -hmm. I was a very good girl. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who are active earlier than I was, I'm curious how much pleasure was a part of it. Like, how much was this about you? really experiencing your pleasure and that being forefront and how much of it was about making or causing the other person to feel pleasure? How much of the focus was on you and how much was on him? I'm pretty sure that my early sexual experiences were about my pleasure. Mm. Um, in fact, look, now that I'm thinking about it, I think that my pleasure has always been at the front of my own mind unconsciously. Um, but I definitely, I don't remember having any sexual experiences that were about me wanting the other person to feel some kind of way or wanting them to like me. Like it was always about my pleasure. Even the first time I had sex, I was 16 and I literally woke up one day and was like, I think I'm ready to do it. And there was a guy that was my older sister's boyfriend's brother who I knew he thought I was so cute. And I called him and I said, so I'm going to come over tomorrow. I'm going to ditch school and I'm going to come over and, and we're going to have sex. And and well, I was 16, he was 18, and he was like, uh, okay, like, <laughs> and I did. I went to his house, and um, I was nervous about it, but I was, I felt ready. And so, yeah. you know, I remember it being uncomfortable, like physically uncomfortable, because it was the first time, and, you know, it definitely wasn't the pleasure I thought was going to happen. Um, because it was new and my body didn't know how to feel like full yet and all that stuff. But um, even when it felt too painful, like to proceed, he was like, I can stop. And I was like, nope, keep going. Afterwards, I remember thinking it was overrated. It's hurt. It didn't feel as good as I thought it was going to feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So how long did it take you to do it again? Oh, immediately. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> like, because I was like, you know, I remember, I knew that I had got, I, I masturbated all the time and it was very pleasurable. And I thought, you know, I was very aware that, um, again, like now I'm, now that I'm talking about it, I'm very surprised. I'm, I'm always surprised at how wise I was when I was younger, but I was aware that it got better. And so, I think that I probably did it the next week. I did go home and confess to my mother the same day. I was like, I did it today. And she was like, you did what? I was like, I did it. And she was not um, exactly happy, but we had a conversation about it. And um, and I think like the next week, like I think that I pretty much after that was um, it was fairly regular. So what kind of conversation had you had your, with your mother beforehand? Like, was this an open topic of conversation in your household? Um, I wouldn't say it was open, but it wasn't closed. Like I have always been like super inquisitive and I challenged both of my parents in terms of the things, the thoughts that I would have and where, where my, you know, what the things I would query, they really didn't know what the fuck to do with me. And so Hmm. I asked my mom things all the time, like random stuff, because even when I told her I had sex, like, you know, then I asked her, like, well, what was your first time? Like, you know, my mom was a virgin when she married my dad. And I was like, you know, tell me about tell me about your experience or whatever. And she did. So she never like she never shut me up about like asking questions about sex, but she definitely didn't invite it. And what kind of um what did you see in your childhood home? Like what kinds of affection did you see between your parents? Almost none. Well, that is fascinating because I, I think my natural assumption would be that for a child to have the sort of healthy relationship that it sounds like you had with your own sexuality, that that would come out of a home where it was being talked about and demonstrated. And yet it sounds like the exact opposite. Oh, no. Yeah. Nope. There was no physical affection. There were no I love yous. My mom was a great mom in terms of the things that she learned how to do. Like we like we she was extremely neat. So we always had a very immaculate home and we always looked very immaculate because that was important to her. She showed up for like all the school stuff and all of that stuff. But I don't remember ever hearing I love you until I was a grown up. And that became something that we cultivated as a habit as an as adults. But it's not something that happened at our house. Wow. As you matured and started having your own adult relationships, how much did you mirror your parents and how much was it really important to you to like say I love you and be really affectionate? You know, I am I am a very I'm very communicative. So um, communication is my superpower. How often do I struggle or do I Mm. resist, you know, expressing physical intimacy toward men? And the answer surprised me because the answer was all the time. And so that opened up this whole like bucket of me having um, realizing like the wounds that I had around like my father. And so like now I'm really conscious of like my body language. Like just recently I went like on a coffee date with someone 
And he said, is it okay for me to put my arm, you know, like around the back of your chair? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. But like, I could feel my body moving away from him. The more comfortable I am with someone, the more physical intimacy I I express and the easier it is. But I definitely recognize that the physical intimacy piece is definitely um, still like attached to me from my childhood, whereas sexual intimacy is not a problem for me. Mm. My father I, and and again, like now that I've been working through this, I I see things. Um, my father was physically present and emotionally absent. Mm. So like now I'm recognizing a lot of, a lot of different things. Like, like I remember on my way to therapy recently, and of course, because the universe either has jokes or something, (laughs) but on the way there, like I'm in the car driving and then this song comes on, it's a country song. And I don't remember who the singer was, but she was talking about like, how her father would come to her dance recitals and that she was still the same little girl with her tutu and how she loved her dad so much. And I was like, I'm weeping. I'm like, my father never came to dance recitals. Like, (laughs) (laughs) But in that, in that same experience, like on that same drive, thankfully I was on my way to therapy, but on that same drive, I also remembered the very first, experience, a recognizable experience of my father emotionally distancing himself because we ate dinner at the kitchen table every single night. And I remember being again in the single digits and my father sitting at the table with us. But toward the end, like before maybe 10, I remember my dad ate dinner in the living room with a TV tray while the rest of us were at the kitchen table. It's interesting what you were just saying about that emotional distance, um, because I experienced during different parts of my life, I experienced the emotional distance with my dad and then the actual physical distance and then, you know, various combinations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, in a lot of ways, I think the emotional distance is, was always harder for me to handle than the physical distance, because it's like, you're right there. How come I can't reach you? Yes. You know, I, I, I definitely relate to that. And, um, and I think up until now I discounted that. Like I didn't really give it you know, I knew the 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 mother stuff, you know, and that was what I thought the, those were the prominent things. But I think that it was easier for me to access my discontentment with my mom because she was so available. Mm. So I could be mad at her, you know, you know what I yes. mean? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I spent so many years being mad at my mother when really it was my father. That was the total shit show. Uh, yes. Yes. You know, it's funny. This I wrote this quote down yesterday watching a video. Love makes us feel safe enough to be horrible. Mm. And that was a, on one of those school of life videos. But but like in saying that, like, I think that that was the reason. And I, uh, this is the first time I've ever made this connection, by the way. <laughs> but I think that that was the reason that I was able to work through my mother's shit was because she was so available that I could be could give myself permission to be mad at her out loud and be expressive about it and, you know, express my dissatisfaction and my discontentment. And I have never done that with my father. 
Oh my God. I, I so relate to so much of what you're saying. Like I was able to be angry at my mother because I knew no matter how angry I got at her, she would never leave. Yes. And that allowed me to express. So even though she was like, I, I later began to understand she was the hero of my childhood. Mm -hmm. She was the one who made, who made it possible um, for me to be as sane (laughs) as I was, (laughs) which on any given day was maybe marginal, but um, it was really the issues with my dad were so overwhelming that I had no idea how to handle them. Mm And and for me, my dad passed away um, when I was 26. So I never had the opportunity to really delve into that with him. I'm not sure he would have been able to go there with me. But I I really understand what you're saying, like wanting to be able to really show up and be like, okay, here is what it is so that I don't have to be afraid of losing my sense of self if you disagree with me. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, cuz I don't think my dad can um mm-hmm. and this this might be a story um cuz I don't know by fact, but but I don't think my I don't think my dad can show up for the conversation. I'm not certain that he will be able to be accountable and I'm not expecting him to. You know, I I'm not expecting him to. So that's the reason I'm like I got to process enough to be unattached. You know, because yeah. because maybe the opportunity may never come. Like maybe you know maybe not. But I want to be able to not because I really care how he receives, but I want to be able to feel good about like the woman that I see in the mirror when I'm finished. Yes. Yeah. It's heavy shit though. And I think we often don't give nearly enough credence to how intensely this stuff spills over into our adult relationships. Oh my goodness. Yes. Like when the, when the initial wave of anger came over me, what triggered it was, I was like, now I'm going to have to work on this physical intimacy because of him. Like, you know, like (laughs) now I have all this work to do because what I don't want to do is I do not like relationships are really important to me. Like that's the only, like, I love what my work, I love, you know, I love life, but what I really want to be as masterful as I possibly can about in this lifetime is being good at relationships, everything mm. else, because there's nothing else. It, it, their relationships are about business. Relationships are about personal relationships are about love. You relationship when you check out at the grocery store, like there is no thing that doesn't include relationships, however brief or however long. And I want to be able to be the best version of, I, of that I possibly can in my relationships with people because relationships are fucking optional. So I want people to want to be in relationship with me. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment, 
and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. And together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. I have a daughter. And so a lot when you were asking me about like, um, like what what my childhood was like and how that impacted me. Well, because of that and because for whatever reason, and I was only almost barely 22 when I had a kid and I was really, it was really important for me to raise her, to not be frigid and to be very mindful of the fact that sex was pleasurable and you had to be responsible. Like I did not want her to grow up feeling like she needed to be more concerned about STDs and getting pregnant than she was about her pleasure because all of those things are important. And I wanted her to feel really empowered. And I have to say I, I was successful. That's awesome. I, I'm <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, I just heard you use the, you said you didn't want her to be frigid. That's a, a word that we don't hear quite so much anymore. What does that mean to you? You know, I knew so many women, and of course, this is my 20-something self, right, that were not experiencing pleasure and that sex was already this thing that they avoided and that they didn't want. And so I, for whatever reason, and I don't know why it was important to me because like my mom's a sexual person and she, again, she wasn't as expressive as, as I was, but I was aware that she was sexual. And so it wasn't like I had that as an example. I I didn't want her to be one of those people that people set behind their, behind her back. Like she, she needs to get laid so bad. You know what I mean? Like, you to be one of those people because you know those people. And when people say it, they say it jokingly, but it's true because you can tell when someone's well fucked and when they aren't. Energetically, you can tell. You don't have to be talking about sex. Yeah. You can tell in the way that they carry themselves, in the way that they re- relate to other people. You can just tell. I did not want my daughter to be one of those people. I don't know why that was important, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back and talk about some of your relationships. Uh, 
we talked about the first time you had sex. When was the first time that you had a, a real relationship that was like an important emotional connection for you? Um, I, my first real, like that guy, I called him my boyfriend, but that was just because I was trying not to feel hoish about fucking him, but I didn't really like him that much. Um, um, we're not in contact mm-hmm. anymore, so I hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really, didn't really like him that much. And then, um, I, the second guy I was completely smitten with, he and I are actually still friends, but we didn't, we were like a couple for a couple of months and then he broke up with me, which was heartbreaking. So then after that though, I had what I consider my first real boyfriend because it was, um, it was reciprocal and he really loved me and we were together for several years. It was passionate and volatile and great and awful. Like <laughs> it was <laughs> We had a great time and sometimes we were like the worst people to one another. It was like, you know, it was young romance, but he loved me. And I actually broke up with him because I felt like he wasn't, he wasn't being productive enough in his life. Cause you know, I thought I was grown and shit. And so, <laughs> and so I broke up with him. And after that, I met um, who would be my husband, my daughter's father. And on our very first date, I was like, he's going to be my husband. Oh, wow. Yeah. We are not together anymore, but we're still really great friends. I'm curious. You said in that first relationship, things were really volatile, like things were really great and they were really awful, really passionate. Um, Do you feel like those two things go together, the sexual passion and the sort of emotional volatility? No. Okay. (laughs) No. (laughs) You know, I think that we were, we were both young. We argued about stupid shit, you know, and, and I remember like being moody and like picking fights about stuff, but, um, you know, we were under 20. (laughs) (laughs) So then have you been able to find that sort of that level of sexual passion without that is not coupled with that level of emotional volatility? Yes. Um, I had a really long-term, um, lover who was just so fucking good in bed. And there was no, in fact, we were to, we were, we were never a a couple. We were never a couple. We were great friends that happened to fuck and we never had any argument. So I can't say that it was because there was not um, a high level of responsibility to one another in that relationship. Recently, recently um, I had, I had a lover and it was so interesting that he was only the second person that I had ever been with that I was equally aroused and annoyed and simultaneously. <laughs> and it was very, but, but he just, it was, uh, it was like, it was combustible though. Like, you know, like it was like, you knew that it could not last and it only lasted for three months hmm. because it was too combustible. Like it, I, like the first 30 days, I was like, I have argued with you more than I have anybody in the last five years. Wow. And he just, he didn't know how to disagree. And he was a man child, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you now in your dating and sex life? 
Um, right now I am, I was married for 12 years. And so I've been single for, um, almost a year and, um, I don't know if I was ever monogamous. I don't think I was. And, uh, now I am grown enough to not feel like I have to fit in that box. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So, so like now I am practicing, I, I'm, I'm, I'm single. So I'm, I'm practicing ethical non-monogamy. I do have, I have two lovers that, um, are both partnered and I, I love them both. And, but I'd, I'd like to, I would like to meet someone single and be able to have a, a primary partner. That would be lovely. Mm-hmm. So when you say you don't think you were ever monogamous, does that mean that you were practicing non-ethical non-monogamy, i.e. cheating? Or does that mean that you were performing monogamy, but not actually monogamous at your core? I'm both. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I have been a cheater and, and I also avoided like between I've been married twice and between, um, between my marriages, I avoided, um, I avoided being someone's girlfriend because of that. And so, um, I just didn't want to, I would, I'd rather not have a label smacked on my forehead is what I thought. I didn't realize yet that I could be open and I could just tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. You know, I could just tell the truth. So like now I'm, I'm very open. Like when I meet someone, you know, I tell them like, you know, I, I do have, I do have lovers and, um, are you okay with that? And if you aren't, I, I understand. Um, but even before I became aware, like in my, in my last marriage, from the beginning, I fidelity was never a it was never a condition of being with me. And so from the beginning, I would tell him like he liked to dance, like he liked to Latin dance, which can be very provocative. And I would say like, you know, when you go out dancing, you might want to you might your body might respond to the person you're dancing with. And if you feel like you want to do something about it, just take care of yourself, because if you take care of yourself, you're taking care of me. Mm, that's lovely. I'm I'm not sure if he ever um decided to do that but it was always available to him. Mhm. I think it's um I again, you know, this podcast is called Good Girls Talk About Sex because I have always been such an incredibly good girl mm-hmm. and then it's only in the last couple of years that I have taken a deep dive into sexuality, sexual autonomy and and opening all that up for myself. And in the process, I've learned about non-monogamy as an option. It was not even something that I really understood was an option Mm -hmm. for people. All I knew was that some people were committed and some people cheated. And it never occurred to me that, that cheating was actually just non-monogamy where people were not telling the truth. Exactly. (laughs) Like it was possible to do that and have it be healthy and have it be okay with everybody involved. Absolutely. And, and when it, when it works, it's a beautiful thing. Like um, I have a lover that 
is so amazing. In fact, just yesterday I said, you know, I just need you to clone yourself twice and then my life will be so much easier. Um, he's, he's an amazing, he's an amazing person. He's an amazing husband and an amazing father. Like I love the way he loves his wife so much. And he is generous with his love and he's generous with his attention. You know, I know where the lines are and I I have no, I have no interest in crossing them and I respect their, I respect their union. And, and it's, it's just great. It's great. There's not like, I don't feel any jealousy about it at all. Do you have a relationship with her at all? Um, I do not. I would I would love to meet her. I haven't ever met her in person. Um, she's she's an amazing person. What I've seen of through of her through his eyes is is absolutely amazing. But she is absolutely aware of my existence, mm-hmm. and so it's it's not um, it's not a secret. You would like at some point to meet someone who would become a primary partner. Did I? Did I interpret that correctly? Absolutely. I would okay. I would like that because you know there's only so much at least in my experience it doesn't mean it's everyone who practices um non-monogamy or polyamory but in my experience there's only so much um emotional growth that can happen when you are with partnered partners. Oh, interesting. At least for for me, I mean, because there are things that don't come up. Like, for example, I did have with uh, with my last that that little volatile thing I was explaining. We we were trying to explore the potential of um, being primary partners. So some of the things that some of the things that come up though are like, okay, I I'm going on a date, and you know, what, what would you like the protocol to be? Do you want me to talk to you immediately following the date? And then, you know, he asked, well, do you plan to have sex with this person? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not planning to have sex with this person. I don't know if there's going to be enough chemistry for that. But even if it is, I've already told you that I am not going to have sex with this person. So if that if that's something that's going to be entertained, it'll be a conversation between you and I before I move forward with that person. Mm-hmm. Whereas that's not something that I that's not a conversation that I have with a partnered partner. Uh huh. Where you are a secondary or a, a non primary. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, the the title of this podcast is "Good Girls Talk About Sex." So I would love to hear you talk about. What did the words good girl mean to you as a child and what do they mean to you now? I had a friend when I was in eighth grade and she was way more sexually advanced than I was. And um, like I was just still reading about sex aside from masturbating. And, you know, like I stopped making out with um, with relatives by then. You know, so <laughs> So, so, you know, at that point, the only thing that I was like having, you know, my own self-exploration, but I wasn't doing anything with other people. But this particular friend, she was all, she had already had sex and she had already given blowjobs. And I remember like, like her getting a reputation at school. As a child, a good girl meant that you didn't do those things. Now, I w- didn't think anything was wrong with what she was doing. 
Like, I remember asking her questions because she had done things that I hadn't done. So I wanted to know about blowjobs and how do you relax your throat? How do you keep from throwing up and that kind of thing? Um, So, like, I didn't think anything was wrong with what she was doing, but everyone else did. And so, like, now, now I just think that that's bullshit. Like, I think (laughs) that I think it's all bullshit. It's just a matter of, you know, being where you're at, what, you know, whatever your mature enough, however much responsibility sexually you're mature enough to handle at any given moment, whether that's even just the responsibility of, you know, taking good care of yourself, whatever that looks like. So like now I don't think that I don't have any judgment around um, people that are sexual or how early they're sexual because it is a natural, it's, it's the most natural thing. Life is literally sexually transmitted. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing. There is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Before we let Stacy go, let's do the quick five. Five quick questions that we'd usually be too polite to ask anyone. Approximate number of partners. Oh, shit. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Over 30. Okay. Favorite sex position? 
I love being on top because I can get maximum pressure and, um, you know, my clit gets a lot of stimulation. If I'm writing it right, I can rub my G-spot. It's like all the things. All right. Favorite sex toy? Hands. Uh, sex during your period? Yes, lots. Do you have hair down there or are you bare? Nope. I got hair everywhere. I'm over that <laughs> shit. I don't shave shit anymore. Look, if you want to be I with this, it. you got to be ready to go to the jungle. It's fine. <laughs> Do you have single orgasms or are you multi-orgasmic? I'm so fucking multi-orgasmic. Like bottomless well. Have you always been that way? And dear God, how do I become that way? <laughs> you know, I, I have. I Well, it's it's gotten more. Like I, when I was younger, no. Um, like in my 20s, I don't think maybe one or two. But like now, this is, this is, and this might be useful to you. One of the things that, like my whole thing is staying in the room, making sure that my, that my presence is where I'm at and I focus my attention wherever I'm feeling sensation. And so like if someone's doing something to my clit, then that's where my attention is at. And in doing that, I am able to feel so much. And also like priming my nervous system when I'm not being sexual. So like even in the shower, like I, I play with the temperature just so that my nervous system can expand. Because sometimes the reason that we can't be multi-orgasmic is because we constrict too much. And our instinct when something gets too good or too sensitive is to clench up and to tighten. Well, orgasms do not squeeze out of tight spaces. So if if we can relax into into any sensation that we're feeling, then we can ride the wave of orgasm and it rather than it, every single one feeling like a crash. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Look, I want you to have a lot of orgasms. Uh, dear God, me too. <laughs> At least I'm having orgasms yes. now, which is, you know, like <laughs> yes. better than it used to be. Do you swallow or not? Um, I do swallow um, when I choose. I love fellatio when I really like the person and also when I'm aware of the kinds of foods that the person eats. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How much noise do you make during sex? I'm not like super noisy, but I like to talk and I like to be talked to. Oh, what kinds of talk do you like? You know, I really like for the persons um, to be whispering in my ear so that I'm hearing, but I'm also feeling the sensation of their breath like on my ear. So that like adds arousal for me. Um, but I love for them to like tell me, um, you know, what they're doing or what it feels like or what they like to do. Mm. Yeah, Dan Savage, who whose work I'm a huge fan of, often says um, that dirty talk is telling a person what you want to do to them, telling a person what you are doing to them, and then telling the person what you just did to them. Yes, I, I'm. <laughs> yes, I've never heard that before, but yes, all of that. Yeah, <laughs> all of that. Awesome. Uh, do you prefer penetration or clit stimulation? Um. Actually, I prefer to be penetrated because even with I, I like thumbs better than fingers. And the reason is because if someone's laying like like parallel to you, 
and and they insert their their thumb like so say like you're on the left side and the other person's on the on the right side then they would insert that hand that thumb inside and then I can like squeeze my legs together and so I get like um I get I can get my the inside of my clitoris stimulated and the outside stimulated at the same time. And it makes for the most delicious orgasms ever. Nice. I like that. It's, it's so amazing. All right. Do you prefer to be the giver or the receiver of sexual pleasure? I like to be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to be both. I really love I really love giving pleasure because it's such a power trip and I love being <laughs> the receiver of pleasure also. Yeah. Awesome. That's it. We've done it. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? Hmm. No, this was this was very revealing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have loved every moment. Yes, I've enjoyed this. You know, I I don't get to be on the receiving end very often. And so I think this this may be the most revealing interview I've ever done. Ooh, yay. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for opening up and for really being willing to reveal yourself. Thank you for your great questions. This was beautiful. I'm so excited about this. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at goodgirlstalk for more sex positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. 
Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs> <laughs>